Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Pete booked himself on a new test plane. I'm curious to see uh, how things go with that. It's something called the Valkyrie? Anyway, he's not here today. Uh, today, we're talking about Minute 90, which begins with Schmidt's Hydra metaphor at work and ends with Steve trying to get drunk. Back on the show, sadly, for the last time uh, this season is Lorraine Dom. Hello, Lorraine. Hello. Uh, so uh, before we jump into the minute and talk more about uh, the Hydra hangar and the Valkyrie and the whip and fiddle and all this good stuff, Captain America, favorite Captain America moment for you. Um, do you have something? We, we love discussing this with our guests. It could be from the movies, from the comics. What would you say is your favorite Captain America moment? Uh, it's a strange one, but uh, I I just loved how it was so different from all the others. Um, in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, when Barack uh, kind of challenges him to a fight and Captain America takes off his helmet and his hair is kind of must and he's like, all right, let's do this. Um, he just looked like a young boy who was like, all right, I get to fight. Like, um <laughs> Prior to that, his um, characterization in the movies had been sort of the stodgy old man who was out of his element and out of his time. And that one, uh, coupled with him jumping out of the plane a few moments ago without a parachute, it just showed him as like, you know what, really? He's a young person. Like, he was in the ice for 70 years, but he's really just a 24, 25, 26-year-old guy. And I just I just thought that was a very cute moment, uh, given how much he wanted to fight when he was a runt and couldn't. <laughs> That's actually a good moment. Uh, I, I like that. And that hasn't been called out before. So so that's an interesting one to call out. I, I like that. And it's funny, you make me think about the aging and stuff because, um, you know, he was born in 1918 and went into the ice in 1945 uh, so that, you know, when he goes into the ice, he's 27 years old. But then he's frozen. And I guess cryogenically, I guess, is the idea that that happens. And so he's he's left in the ice. So technically, when he comes out, he's still as 27-ish. But yeah, it's his body obviously is is so so much older. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to young Steve, and I think that's something that is we we've talked about a lot in the show is just the idea of puny Steve versus muscle bound Steve, and how throughout this film, so often it really does feel like. It's, I mean, it's still the puny Steve brain working in there. Like, you know, he hasn't been big muscle bound Steve for that long. And so he's still reacting like a scrawny person would. But I like that you call that moment out because it does feel like this is this guy who's, who was puny and now he's big, but it's like that moment he's almost going back to that alley fight at the beginning of this film Mm -hmm. and saying, yeah, let's, let's do it the old fashioned way back to my old days. But now I can take you. And it's, it's kind of a fun little opportunity there. All right. Well, with that, let's jump into our minute. So we're finishing up in the Hydra headquarters in the, in the Valkyrie hangar. Uh, and here we have Hugo Weaving as Red Skull finishing his speech to his uh, pilots. He drinks his wine. And, and I guess I want to start with this is, you know, he has this line at the start of this minute 
If they shoot down one plane, hundreds more shall rain fire upon them. If they cut off one head, two more shall take its place. Hail Hydra. Uh, it's it's some interesting Hydra metaphors that he has there. I mean, the, fir- the first one's the metaphor. The second one is literally what they always say. If they cut off one head, two more shall take its place. But this whole idea of, like, if they shoot down one plane, hundreds more shall rain fire upon them. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of like the way that he's playing around with the Hydra metaphors throughout this. I mean, how does that play for you? Yeah, I mean, it. On one hand, it just was plain old scary in that, like, you know, the undefeatable enemy or just if we can't beat you with technology and with whatever, we're just going to throw waves upon waves of people at you. You know, that like fighting back is futile, which is always like a rallying cry. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it just it just comes off as somebody who still has who has a lot of things up his sleeve because for, you know, the previous few minutes we've, you know, we're seeing montages of bases being destroyed and Zola's been captured and, you know, he's losing a ton of stuff. And here he is saying, you know, we haven't even scratched the surface of our resources. It's a very interesting speech. And, and I like the way that he does kind of tie in that whole Hydra metaphor. Like, it just feels like, I feel like that's a very villainous way to describe anything. It's like, you know, they take one of our guys out, we send two more in. Like, it just, it makes you always feel never-ending, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think, especially the concept of Hydra, as it's going to um, continue through the decades, the fact that it, it also just kind of permeates. And I, I know this Hydra that he's talking about, it's more like the attack, attack. We're always going to be, there will always be more to fight, but it does kind of weave well nicely into the later Hydra about the kind of the insinuation of, um, you know, taking over shield and kind of right. weaving their way in. I think that's pretty or clever. If you root it out of one thing, it's already into others. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think of the Hydra salute? We get to see it. Uh, all of the pilots do it when he uh, says, Hail Hydra. Do you like the the two-armed modification of essentially the Nazi salute? Yeah. Um, I mean, I get why they couldn't use the Nazi salute, and uh, I'm frankly glad they didn't. But uh, yeah. it's, it's still scary. And um, as I said in yesterday's minute, like just rows upon rows of uh, – of soldiers especially when they're in creepy masks or non-human form you know just ready to go out and annihilate is always scary (laughs) it's just one of those primal things where it's like this is not a good situation um and the fact that they had like a hand signal and they were still so organized and still so determined you know when they were you know supposedly in a losing situation is it's creepy. It it had a it had a like almost a horror tinge to it. I yeah, it's interesting. Um as a Star Wars fan, you know, we have seen through the years scenes of stormtroopers in similar sorts of ranks where you have row upon row of stormtrooper and they're all standing there. I, I'm trying to remember if I, I don't feel like there ever is a situation where you have like stormtrooper salutes or anything. Mm-mm. There's something about the the way that you get mass salutes like this that really it's it's very off putting because it puts you yeah. into a situation where you feel really 
like if you're not agreeing with everything going on, you feel really out of control, like and overwhelmed by the scope. And even when it's just him, because I mean, initially it's just him. And we've seen this once before where he was in the lab back in their uh, factory up in the, or, you know, in their base up in the mountains in Austria, you have this, it's a small salute, but he says, hail Hydra. And you have a few of the soldiers just do a single hail Hydra with their arms up. And then Zola's like, hail Hydra. And he kind of, you know, says in a panic without actually saluting. But I mean, that's the first time we see the salute and it's, it's creepy. It's also off-putting. But here you've got these eight guys, and I jokingly kind of called them gimps earlier because they're all in these like tight black leather outfits that I mean, it's but they're very, very frightening looking. And like if I saw if I mean, if I came across somebody in an outfit like this, I'd be terrified because they seriously look like they're designed to do harm. You know, yeah. they, they don't look like kind people. And their purpose. <laughs> yeah, they have a very specific and uh, malicious purpose. And so it's it's pretty terrifying, and and when they do that salute, it's it's pretty scary. And uh, so yeah, I, I I get that moment, and and then you get the reveal, and this is what we were talking about in yesterday's minute, where you have this setup as you have uh, Red Skull walk up to the table. He's looking at something behind us and kind of scanning across it to kind of evaluate something. We just don't know what until now, because now the camera booms up and tilts down, revealing hundreds of troops behind him. Uh, you know, I was trying to actually count. It's hard to tell because they kind of start uh, melting together at a certain point, but it looks to be about 20 rows deep and maybe 25 or 30 columns wide. So I'm guessing it's 500 to 600 troopers in this space here. And it's really pretty frightening to see like that many people, especially once they start saluting. I mean, it's that's where it really kind of throws you when you see just that massive amount of people doing this. Well, and I think it's like the earnestness of the salute too. Um, you know, I think we all watched Hogan's heroes after school when we were kids and how they would kind of do lackadaisical salutes, um, you know, just to show that nobody was really totally into it. Like right, right, right. we feared. And so like the fact that you see these people like, you know, they, they have drank the Kool-Aid, they have, they have bought into this and they are, they're willing to do as much as Schmidt is at this point. And that, you know, anytime it's a cult of personality, it's scary. And then when we know the personality involved, it's just worse. Yeah. Right. That's very terrifying. Very terrifying. I can't tell from looking at the group, um, you know, there's some great digital technology, obviously of group um, duplication with kind of a repeated camera move where you, I mean, they used it like in Forrest Gump when you have all the people around the, um, the reflecting pool in Washington, DC, and they just moved the same, I don't know, 50 people from one group to, to or one spot to the next spot, to the next spot, to the next spot, and eventually got them all the way around the whole thing. And then they combined all of it digitally, but it was all real people and uh, so it was a very smart way to kind of create a shot that was full of real people, but just it was just the same people duplicated because this space is so artificial. I mean, this massive hangar, you can see how wide it is. I mean, it's a 540 foot uh, wide plane. So obviously the space is easily 600 plus feet. And here we have this massive group of these people. I can't imagine that they were filming this in 
um, a, st- a stage that could fit 500 people, you know, in a space like this. So my guess is they probably uh, digitally did some of this by by duplicating, like you know, fake duplicating the people, not with not with moving them around. But it's it's very difficult to tell because again, they're all in their gimp outfits. Well, I I assume that's one of the reasons for the GIMP outfits. I mean, obviously the visual is the most important, but it's a lot easier to duplicate faceless or featureless, I should say, costumed people than it is to... That that guy with the mole is every fifth person. Yeah, right. Although I I should say that the ones behind him aren't the pilots, so they, they do have their mouths exposed. Um, so at least at least we can kind of see some mouths moving and stuff. It's still scary. It is. Oh, it's still. It is <laughs> However, over- they made it. <laughs> yeah, it still is overwhelming. And we do, of course, they all all they all are holding the Arnimulation 99L assault weapons. Those are the fantastic guns designed by Zola that blast the Tesseract energy. So they're they're fun to see. I also just as a, a last moment in this, um, when we do get the moment where Schmidt sips his his white he does this great little smack of his lips and you know pulls his uh, lips back for a second as he drinks it i i really like the way that that plays it feels i don't know i just i love the way that hugo weaving does these little things with this character that i i find work exceptionally well he's he's savoring his moment like it's it's writ large but it also feels like super personal when you're walking around with a silly red face like this it makes sense to play small and little because it just ends up becoming so much more intimidating well and the fact that it's such a like he's doing a a fairly human you know smacking my lips in front of a bunch of faceless uh subordinates too i think kind of says something yeah right right yeah, you know, it's funny. I wasn't even thinking about the fact we were talking about how there's no additional glasses for anyone else and he's just drinking by himself. It's like, how are they going to drink? They'll have to take their entire head <laughs> yeah. thing off. You know, they can't do anything. So it's very funny. All right. So we, we leave uh, this particular location and end up in the Whip and Fiddle. It is an evening in London. Um, the bombings have obviously been happening because, uh, you know, we see we're in rubble, basically. And it's an evening and, uh, you know, we have Peggy walking delicately through the rubble to enter this destroyed building on the hunt of Steve Rogers, who she finds sitting at a table, drinking by himself, uh, thinking about Bucky. First, my first question for you is... As you watched the film, did you ever have any sense that this was the same bar that they had been in earlier? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yep. Um, just the way the bar, the like the actual bar, like curved around, because that was where Bucky and Steve, Steve sat uh, when they were drinking and talking before Peggy came in the first time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's It's interesting, though, the way that it's set up because it's not ever called out that this is the same place you know it could be any uh, ruined place it doesn't even have to be a bar you know it's so it's interesting that it specifically ended up being the place but yeah i suppose it does make sense that that you know he would be thinking about those last good moments with bucky and uh you know and he would return to the the spot where he had had those before Mm mm-hmm and why Peggy would look for him there because she this is where she probably last saw them together as well. Right, right. 
And I I like how this uh the five scenes through now have they've all been lit progressively darker, which is sort of following Steve's emotional journey, even though he hasn't been present in any of the scenes except for the very beginning of the first and now the last few seconds of the last um just darker and darker and darker and um like purposefully dark not just like how things are filmed now which is in the dark but yeah um but yeah it just like i love that sort of subtle uh showing of steve's journey even when he's not around that's yeah that is nice and you know we also talked about you know this this mirroring a little bit of the villain and the hero and how uh i mean we didn't specifically call that out but you know the idea that in the last scene we had schmidt there with alcohol and he was kind of toasting his successes and his accomplishments and his plans moving forward and this is another nice mirroring moment uh where we now cut to steve and he is doing the same thing he is sitting at a a table with his own alcohol but he is mourning his losses and what he has, what has been taken away from him. Mm-hmm. So there is that nice mirroring between hero and villain that we have playing across these two scenes. And it's interesting because that last scene that we had of Schmidt uh, in the script takes place several scenes after this. So we would have gone from the interrogation room to this to um the uh i think the headquarters and then you know steve on the motorcycle and then we're cutting into the to the valkyrie hangar and so i think smartly i you know again i I don't know for sure but it seems to me that johnston realized there's this nice mirroring between the characters and and the way that he could potentially play that i am am i reading too much into it or do you do you feel that there's something there between the the moments with these characters and their alcohol yeah, like I and I just feel like it's a very smooth transition that way too. Like you had one guy like you said celebrating a success or you know to the future and the other one drinking by himself not crying. No, 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 no. He wasn't crying. Um <laughs> and mourning things that are gone. I I like the way that plays. Well, and it's yeah, because I mean I suppose you could have Schmidt in a position where he would be mourning the the capture of of Zola, you know. But but it's interesting, like the the idea of Zola doesn't come up at all. Like he's not concerned. Uh, as Phillips alluded to, they likely decoded the message and know that he is now working with the Allies in exchange for you know um, his freedom and everything. And so it doesn't even come up. But it does make me wonder if. If there's an element to expediency as far as the plans with the Valkyrie on on Red Skull's part because of that. And I, I yeah, guess like, I really hadn't thought about that, but it does make me wonder, like, you know, is he really kicking things into gear now because of all this? Yeah, like they know they know his secret weapon exists, so he now he's gotta use it before they destroy it. Yeah, they know it exists, they know where it is, all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just he has yeah. to take all that into account. Yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, a nice little touch 
in this scene that I really enjoy is hearing the the speaker playing through the streets of London, um, letting people know what they need to be doing. And it's saying, your attention, please, all citizens to remain indoors until further notice. Blackout is still in effect throughout the London areas. Please wait for the all clear. And it's just playing in repeat in the background as Peggy comes in. And uh, I don't know, just moments like that, you hear a siren uh, going off in the distance. It it they're small uh, oral elements added to the this. I mean, it's a set that we're on, obviously, um, but they add so much to help create a sense of the place and the space. Yeah, and just the not necessarily the history, but that war is a lived thing, and that people who aren't involved in the war at all are still you know, having to do blackouts and are still getting bombed and are still, you know, I mean, London at that time was mostly civilians because, you know, everyone else was out fighting in, in continental Europe. And so like, I don't know, it just, it just kind of brought it home for everyone, I guess. Like, even though they weren't on the front, they weren't safe. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and I like that, they're incorporating again they're incorporating real world elements into it and i think that it, mm-hmm. it, it plants this story in a place that feels uh feels real feels uh lived in right like they make the fantastic believable by making the mundane believable yeah exactly okay so peggy and steve uh, where do you stand on the relationship between these two characters do you buy it do you like the way they're portrayed uh, I loved their relationship in this movie and in later ones. I guess I didn't believe in uh spoiler for Endgame uh when he <laughs> he chooses to go back in time to be with her. That just doesn't seem like an action he would take, but uh as as it is in this movie, I I just they're wonderful together. I I liked how she liked him back when he was a runt, and I like how she also didn't take any guff from him when he was Captain America, or she like literally shot his shield. Um, <laughs> so oh yeah, she's feisty. Her her TV show getting canceled was a dark day. I mean, it was a wonderful TV show. Um, yeah, I just think they're the greatest together. Well, what do you think of the way that this scene plays? You know, this is, you know, she knows Steve is in mourning. This is, again, several days after they've returned from the Alps and the loss of Bucky. And here he is just kind of sitting here in mourning. And she's, you know, essentially, you know, kind of coming here to find him and try to comfort him. Do you, do you like the way it plays? Yeah, I mean, I I really like a that Marvel showed him mourning and being sad rather than like the usual I'm going to get violent and beat up somebody or um, typical man responses. I liked that they showed him being emotional and truly missing a friend like that. That's rare. And then I also like that. I mean, given the the actual time difference in the movie and in the scenes that played out. I mean, we know it's been a couple days. And so I feel like either this is the first time he's had time to mourn Bucky or she tried to give him some space and now has to kind of set him right. Like you've mourned. That's good. That's healthy. Let's keep mourning. But, you know, as goes on in other things, she also kind of reminds him that, you know, there'll be time to mourn after the war. Like she's, she's, she's the one seeing the mission at this point. And I don't know. I just, I feel like that's, 
that's what he needed at the moment. Yeah, we've gone back and forth with her, uh, the way she's handling Steve and, and um, interacting with him. And, you know, is she in this just for the science? Is she in this because she really loves him? Does she only love him because he got all hunky and muscly? Uh, and, and then like, you know, when she shows up at the, at the camp in Italy, um, and kind of casually drops, oh, that's the 107th. And he's just like, oh, I'm Bucky. And, and he runs off to go save Bucky. And, you know, it, she kind of unintentionally, at least the way that it's played in the film, um, gets him out of his USO rut and actually out into the field, which is, is nice to see. But there are so many moments where I feel like, I want to I want to feel like Peggy was having more agency in guiding him along that path. I never quite feel they do. It's just kind of she seems to be there and kind of saying things that that trigger things for him, but it all seems unintentional and and so I, I yeah, I, I love that she's kind of the representative of, of the SSR and kind of there to kind of talk to Steve and have these moments, but sometimes I do feel like I wish there was a better sense of the the position she'd had in trying to guide him as the, as this experiment, you know? Right. I mean, there is a little bit of, I mean, when they're in the car together, when they first meet, um, he's still runty, you know, you, you get a little bit of attraction there. Like you get that he thinks she's a pretty girl that's out of his league and she thinks he's like clever or whatever. And you like that, but yeah, you, it, would be nicer to see her actually doing some field work too. Um, I mean, there's a reason why they wanted her on the line rather than back in London doing whatever. Um, so I would have liked to see her do more stuff, but I guess my opinion is also clouded by the TV show where we did get to see her do all that. Yeah. 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 Right. And in the one shot, which is a nice, I guess, test for the show. Yes. Yes. Um, we don't get a whole lot of their conversation. I'm going to save that for next week. But what we do have here is this moment where he's talking about Erskine and the serum. And again, we don't really get the whole thing with him being drunk and stuff. But I, I do I do like that this is an element that I think it's interesting for a person in grief. And sometimes when you're in grief, you want to kind of wallow in your sorrow and just have a bunch of alcohol, get drunk. So you don't have to get like mired in the realities and right and that's that's an interesting element for a character like this who can't do that <laughs> yeah like it one of his coping methods have been taken away not that he was you know ever shown as being somebody who drank away problems but yeah like something you're used to and turn to to help you doesn't help you anymore yeah right it's also like the only way out of grief is through. And so to um, not be able to do one of the things, one of the steps is, you know, I think it probably stymies you more in general then because you have to, not only do you have to navigate your grief journey, but now you have to navigate a journey around this one that used to be an easy step, but now it, it takes you longer. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's it is interesting, and I yeah I'll, I'll be exploring that some more. I, I, but I do like that it's an element that really is uh, like they they weren't um, they weren't afraid to kind of like get into that here, and so I think that's a valuable part of this character and the and his journey. 
to shove aside his grief for a moment, which is terrible. Um, and I don't know. It always made me wonder about other things. Like, does he have a metabolism that just won't quit? Like, does he have to eat Yeah, right. thousands upon thousands of calories a day? Or like, <laughs> you know, can he still get drunk? And would he just have to drink unhealthy amounts? Or like, yeah, right, you right. know, like what is, does aspirin work for him? <laughs> you know, like, and like, if he needs a blood transfusion, then does his powers go down or like, I don't. Yeah. No kidding. So so many questions or like she Hulk, you know, if his blood got into somebody else, would they, well, I guess, I mean, obviously they draw a bunch of his blood. Um, Of course we didn't talk about it in that episode, but thinking about it, it's like, how do they get a needle through his skin? You know, it's like, right. (laughs) Yeah. uh, The question. Or like, why didn't it like close up before they could draw a reasonable amount? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. He, like you would assume he is super clotting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very funny. Uh, my only other note here is I love th- this scene, and I, it may just be the way that Peggy is dressed as she kind of comes in here in like this uh, this trench coat, this military trench coat, but mm-hmm. it feels very Casablanca. Like I get this kind of this vibe of the 40s films, and I, I that's something right. I, I really enjoy that. Uh, Johnston was trying to capture throughout the entirety of the film is that sense of time. And I feel like he did it exceptionally well. Yeah. I, her outfits in particular were great, but I, yeah, he did a very good job of celebrating the forties without mocking them, I guess would be the maybe too strong of word. Like a lot of times, especially like seventies and eighties and nineties movies, you know, that were set in, made now but set then you know they're they're sort of wink winky about the fashion like the characters are wearing it but it's supposed to be funny or it's supposed to be like good good grief did we actually wear that but this i mean the characters look nice and they're proud of looking nice in this movie like even when in the alley scene when bucky came in and he was wearing his uniform just in the street you know he was doing it to impress the chicks like you know he thought he looked pretty (laughs) pretty fine in his uniform and so like to see kind of people just being people and like liking their fashion and stuff like that it's it, it was very refreshing i love it it's good stuff All right, well, we'll uh, wrap it up there and uh, talk more about all of this, the whip and fiddle and Peggy and Steve next week. But Lorraine, uh, thank you so much for joining me all week. Thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation about uh, so many different aspects of of, you know, the loss of Bucky, the morning, uh, you know, Steve's morning process, uh, the interrogation, Schmidt and his plane. Lots of good stuff to chat about this week. Zola's inner hopes and dreams. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, everybody else, uh, remember, you can go to Marvel Movie Minute, learn more about what we're up to, learn about our membership program to get uh, early access to the episodes, avoid getting all the ads. And uh, that's it. So until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. 
Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.